Well, I know church is supposed to be orderly, and um, we want to be respectful, but I thought maybe we could start off with some audience participation. So I would like for you to respond audibly to just a couple statements I'm going to make. Uh, so don't overthink it. If it's like a woot, give me a woot. If it's like a yes, if it's like an ug, what are you thinking about these things? So here's the first one. You ready for this? School's out. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, let's do that just for parents. School's out. <laughs> Not quite as enthusiastic. All right. Um, the Toronto Raptors win the NBA title. All right. Uh, <laughs> in the end, Jesus wins. All right. So that was the loudest one yet. So we have a combination of natural and supernatural responses to those statements today. Hey, guess what? You just did something biblical. Before I even heard God's word preached, you just did something biblical. We've been studying Revelation, and in Revelation 19, which is one of the final chapters of Revelation, I would say it's part of the renewal section of Revelation, where God is now bringing things back around and renewing all things unto himself. The people of God worship and shout out to God words of praise when God wins. And at times we might sort of think, I don't know if we should be shouting and praising when evildoers fall, when the devil loses. I mean, isn't that kind of maybe self-focused? Isn't that maybe a little bit mean? Well, actually, it's biblical. It's biblical for us to offer words of exuberant praise to God when God wins. And so this is what we're going to do today. This is what we're going to study. Uh, as was the case with the psalmists and the prophets of old, believers understood this truth that God receives glory for himself when evildoers fail. God receives glory for himself when evildoers fail. How many of you have spent a lot of time lately in the book of Habakkuk? <laughs> One person. Okay. Awesome. That's great. So Habakkuk chapter 3, I'm just going to read one verse for you from Habakkuk, just to illustrate the point. Habakkuk 3, verse 13, this is what it says. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. This is one of many passages in the Bible where the people of God worship and celebrate God's victory over evil. And so we can celebrate that together as well. And I don't know about you, but I've just been increasingly burdened. And many of you know this, you've sensed it, you've heard me speak on this point, but I've just been increasingly burdened by how far removed we are from heaven in this world. This world is just like unbelievably hellish in so many ways. And I was reading this week from Psalm 137. And in Psalm 137, the psalmist who is depicting the life of an exile that's been dragged off to Babylon and he's down by the river and he's mourning how far removed they are from Zion, the city of God. Here's what he says in Psalm 137.1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
This is like that longing for home, that longing for the day when Christ will show and God will show their victory over darkness. The people of God have been looking forward to that for a long time. We're still looking forward to it in our own Babylon. When we will return to Zion, when we will be in the full presence of God. But in the meanwhile, God delivers to us while we live our lives in exile, this joyful message that in the end, God wins. And in the end, evil fails. And so we have reason to praise God. Let's just take a moment to pray as we enter into Revelation 19 and hear from God, God's word today. Father, thank you that you are the victor, Christus victor, God, the God who wins. And Lord, we pray that as we observe all of the decadence and the disease and the death that is around us and the moral decay, that we would not be discouraged. Yes, we would find ourselves dismayed and saddened by what we see, but we would not be defeated, but that we would remember that we serve a God who wins and is winning even now. So, Father, speak truth into our lives that transforms us. In Christ's beautiful, holy name we ask. Amen. Revelation 19. Again, this is the renewal section. The first few chapters are essentially dedicated to lessons God wanted to teach to the early church. And then we entered into chapter after chapter, from chapter 4 really up to chapter 18. Chapter after chapter of encountering evil systems and evil beings, evil powers, the great dragon, the great prostitute, Babylon, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, chapter after chapter that will depict life in the future for the people of God during the tribulation period. And just absolute moral bankruptcy will reign for a period of time. And we're thinking, man, we're starting to see a lot of that in the here and now, but now we're entering into the renewal chapters where God steps forward and he's like, hey, I want to remind you of who's the boss. And so as we come into this, yes, we are saddened that the wicked die in their rebellion, but we praise God that he wins in the end. Here's lesson number one. We praise God when falsehood fails. Where do we see that in the text? Let's read it together. Revelation 19, starting with verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, just means praise God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So here the people of God are praising God as they see the systems of this world, evildoers, being burned in eternal fire because of their incessant and habitual rebellion against God. And this eruption of praise is directed to God. It's right to God. They're giving glory to God. They're giving praise words to God. They're attributing to God 
the success that they're witnessing over evil. And what is it that causes this? Well, in this text, we are told that God's judgments are two things. They are true and they are just. They are just and they are true. We believe that God's judgments are true and just. Not all judgments are. You might misread someone. Have you ever met someone and you kind of have a negative view of them and then you're like, man, was I wrong? They're a really awesome person. Or you hear of court cases that all the evidence is there and they look at it and someone's wrongfully convicted. Or someone gets away with crime that they've committed. Our judgments are not always true and our judgments are not always just. But God's judgments are always just and true. And here God declares that he will judge the great prostitute for her immorality. And his judgment will be just and true. Now, as I've taught before, the great prostitute symbolizes the world system in opposition to God. And that system commits many more sins than just the sin of sexual immorality. But sexual immorality is sort of selected as the sin that characterizes all sins because sexual immorality is so self-absorbed. It symbolizes all sin. Absorption with self. That's the nature of evil. And as I've mentioned many times here in the past, you study human history, you look at our the climate, spiritual climate of our current country, and you can pretty accurately judge the spiritual temperature of a people group, a nation, based upon its sexual ethics. And because of that, it's very, very true that we do live in Babylon. We live in a world that is opposed to the things of God. There's things that are happening in our society that are even making unbelievers gasp. An example of that this week was CBC kids drag kids show. CBC is a publicly funded, taxpayer funded television program. And they have a program called Drag Kids that features prepubescent children who have not even reached sexual maturity participating in drag, dressing up as the opposite gender, scantily dressed, dancing in front of the camera. You can, you can see this. I, I, I tweeted it on, on, on Twitter. I, I, I posted this on Twitter. And you read the comments, and even unbelievers are aghast at this. Like, even Sodom and Gomorrah didn't go that far. But this is what we're funding in our country? This is the great prostitute. This is Babylon of the present. This is a country, this is a nation that is opposed to the things of God. But in the future, as disgusting and despicable and discouraging as all of that is, in the future, God wins. And that's grounds for us to praise God that this system, our own great prostitute, will fail unless she repents of her sins. You know, one of the challenges for the Christian life, because our salvation is based upon grace, it's not earned, it's based upon grace, one of the challenges is to be simultaneously aware of your own propensity towards sin, 
and to say, you know what? Oh, that could be me. Or that was me. But thank God I've been saved by grace. The challenge is to maintain that clear understanding that you are not better than other people, just better off. Because God has done a transformational work in your life. And at the same time, not allowing your conscience to be dulled. Not allowing yourself to say, well, you know, I mean, sin is sin. People sin. I sin. It's just the way of the world. What can we do about it? Or to not react to sin because we might think, well, that, that could be me. I, I could do that or I've done that. So there's this, this tension we maintain between humbly relying upon God for his grace and our salvation. But at the same time, having a righteous, deep-seated anger towards anything that robs God of glory or diminishes the image of God that God has endowed humanity with. And the best way to do that, the best way to do that is instead of using yourself as the determinant of how harsh or how gracious you're going to be with sin based upon your own story, to just look to God and maintain a high view of God and to understand that God is, in fact, and always will be true and just in his judgment. And if God says it's wrong, guess what, folks? It's wrong. And if God says it's true, then it's true. And God will avenge the sacrifices, the text tells us, that you have made when you stand up for truth. Notice the text teaches eternal conscious torment, not annihilation, but eternal conscious torment. It says of the great prostitute, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's a time word, forever and ever. And so we should never feel bad about the damnation of the wicked. They have turned off their consciences. They have denied their creator. They have destroyed other people's lives. And while at the same time as experiencing all of that, we pray for their repentance. We're grateful for God's grace. We do not fail to rejoice when God wins. In fact, it should drive our worship even in the here and now. Our song should be littered with declarations of God's pending victory over evil so that God might be given the glory and the honor that is rightly due him. And we better start now. You know why? Because this Bible tells us that praise will be our eternal vocation. In verse 4, the Bible reads, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen and hallelujah. If you've walked with us through this series, you'll be like, I've heard that before a few times. And you're right. Starting back in chapter four, we read those depictions of John gazing through this portal into heaven. And in heaven's presence, in the, in the presence of the, the one who sits eternally on the throne, there were four living creatures 
And there were 24 elders arrayed out before the throne and they are just worshiping God incessantly and habitually forever and ever. I do not believe these are human beings or people that have been taken up to be with God, but these are beings that have been created for the express purpose of habitually worshiping God. And they never yawn and they never get bored and they're never looking at their watches And we can have the best worship team, the best preaching, the best experience today on Sunday morning ever. But after a while, we're like, I got to go. I got to get home. I'm getting tired. My mind can't absorb anymore. My seat can't absorb anymore. Let me go. But heaven is so different in that these eternal beings worship God forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, we already know that because we read about this earlier. But isn't it interesting that in the last several chapters, we really haven't heard that mentioned much? The Bible sort of grew silent on it. It was heavy at the beginning, but now it grew silent on it. And I think literarily that is a deliberate move because now while those beings are worshiping God habitually, it's almost like the evil of chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, right through to chapter 18, have sort of taken the saints' view off of heaven. And maybe they aren't hearing that worship taking place so much. Other things are afoot. And while the heavenly beings do worship God eternally, and have been doing it all through those chapters, all of a sudden we have this refreshing reminder again of what actually is taking place in heaven. And we're reminded that heaven rejoices, especially when God wins. And then, having been reminded of that, we receive a summons. So this isn't just about them, this is about you. Because now we receive a summons. Look at the text says. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Now compared to the four living creatures and the 24 elders, we're all very small. Even among human beings, some people are great people, well-known people, highly talented people, and some people are, are not. But none of that is a hindrance to the habitual worship of God. God calls both the great and the small to enter into a state of perpetual praise before God. And while we have worship leaders in the moment, and some that are especially gifted at leading us in worship, in the eternal kingdom, everyone participates full force in the unfettered worship of God. And it's going to be awesome. And there's no spectators. There's nobody sitting on their hands. There's nobody hanging around in the foyer. There's no one jetting out early. Everybody is connected. Everybody is worshiping God. Everybody is giving glory and honor to God. And this vision of victorious worship is meant to inspire our worship in the here and now. And I would say in order to inspire it, it must inform it. To be inspired, you must be informed. So this text informs us as to the nature of worship. So if you want a little lesson on worship, you're like, okay, I want to be a worshiper. What does that look like? We see some of the components of biblical worship in verses 6, 7, and 8. Here's what it looks like. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Notice the language. The roar of many waters. The mighty peals of thunder. This is about volume, brothers and sisters. There's volume in eternal worship. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There are several lessons in here that we could consider about worship. I wrote five down. Maybe you can find some more. But if we look to the future, so here's, here's what you can do. Let's say you want to rev up your worship life. Just go attend a bunch of churches. Is that how we do it? Just pick up a little style here, a little new way of worshiping here, a creative little component over here. We could do that. And there's nothing necessarily wrong about that. But if you really want to fine tune your worship in the moment, it's not a bad idea to look at what your worship in the future is going to be like. And to ask a simple question, when I stand in the presence of God, what, is it, what will it look like to worship God? And the first thing we see is that it is loud. There's volume. There's oomph behind it. There's some energy. You have to burn some calories worshiping God. It's actually good exercise, by the way. Worshiping God involves some volume. Secondly, it's very vertical, meaning it's very directed toward God. The words are hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Now, we shouldn't even have to preach this, but unfortunately, in a distracted world, we have to preach this because subtly, probably more out of ignorance than anything deliberate, it's so easy even for Christian churches to drift away from vertical worship into horizontal worship, meaning we're talking more about ourselves and our experiences and our need for love and our need to be affirmed that we are declaring to God who he is and how valuable he is. And again, God speaks into the human condition and he offers us so much blessing in the here and now. But worship doesn't start with you. It doesn't start with your considerations of yourself. It doesn't even start with your appreciation for what God has done in you. It starts with declarations about God's grandeur, God's glory, God's worth, God's might, God's honor, and so much more. We look up in worship. We don't just look in or around, but we look up in worship and we declare great things to God. And then the third point I wrote down is that it's centered on God's glory. Again, the mission of God is the glory of God. God is a glory hog and he's allowed to be because he's God. God is very interested in himself and he's allowed to be because he's God. God wants you to praise him. He wants you to honor him. He wants you to make him famous. He wants you to speak of him. And in his purity and in his exalted place, he's allowed to. Don't forget, he's creator, you're created. And so our God calls us to center our worship on him. It says, let us rejoice, verse 7, and exalt and give 
Him the glory. Fourth, it celebrates the coming together of Christ and his church. And we have this beautiful imagery of the church as a beautiful bride. Sorry, guys, if you don't like the metaphor, but this is a biblical metaphor. We are the bride and we are approaching the eternal groom who's described in this text as the lamb who's sacrificed himself for us as the church. And we are preparing ourselves to enter into eternal full fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God now. But the fullness of God's fellowship with us is yet future. And it celebrates that in our worship. And then fifth, it anticipates the righteousness of God's people. In verse 8, it speaks of the church, the bride, as being clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And then it clears up that metaphor for us. It says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I think there's a deliberate contrast going on here. Because on one hand, you have the church being described in its righteousness, the white wedding dress, its purity, its righteous deeds. And just before this, we have the great prostitute in all of her sin, in all of her debauchery, in all of her evil being judged by God. It's a contrast between those that are living the loser life apart from God and those that are living the victorious life, the righteous life in honor and glory of God. And it anticipates the full, fuller righteousness of God's people than we even see in the here and now. This is what I need to start thinking about then. When I, when I kind of see this heavenly picture of worship and the beauty of God and this fixation upon God, I need to ask questions like, am I actually living for these things enough in the here and now? Or have I grown distracted? So easy to get distracted in a busy world. So easy. Am I living for these things in the here and now? Are these things the burning passion of my heart? Does this like get me out of bed in the morning? Does this rev me up? Are these things I'm looking forward to? And are these things I have actually put my hope in? As we look forward to what God has in store, we will enjoy full fellowship with God. Taking this a step further, join me again in verse 9 where it says, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the church. We've received an invitation to join Christ in his eternal kingdom as part of his bride, his church. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. We're going to come back to this, but I just want to make a statement right now, having just read it. Isn't it amazing that this great apostle who for three years apprenticed under Jesus and for decades served the cause of Christ and who had now spent presumably hours, if not days, gazing through this portal into heaven, receiving all of these 
this blessed revelation from God about what, what was to come. Isn't it amazing that even a seasoned veteran, hardcore follower of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was in prison because of his faith in the island of Patmos, has a little stumble and commits an act of idolatry in the midst of worship? Doesn't that say something about our vulnerability as followers of Jesus? Doesn't it say something about how careful we need to be even in worship, even in church life, even while we're hearing God's words proclaimed that we don't trip up and stumble? We need to come back to that. But I want to share with you a little story. When I was young, my parents had this print on the wall. It wasn't the original painting, but it was a print of a painting called The Invitation. And I never knew who painted that, but I, I looked it up. His name is Danny Hallbaum. And there's two different versions of it. I think ours was the older version. But it was a, a picture, a painting essentially, of a banquet table with nobody seated at it that went back and back and back sort of into however far back you want to go. It was just this very, very long table. And it was set up with these beautiful plates and cutlery and these goblets and centerpieces. And it was painted by this man to depict the wedding supper of the lamb, the table that is set. There's a plate set for you that we're waiting to go and participate in. And one of the things that that painting served to do for me as a young boy is kind of imprint upon my soul that there is more to come. There's more to look forward to. This world is not my eternal home. When I breathe my last, it's not the last of Aaron Rock. But God has a place set for me in his eternal kingdom and it kind of served to focus my attention on that. And it's called the invitation. And it's based upon the invitation that we just read about in Revelation 19. It reminds us that soon, very soon, God will call us home. In the meanwhile, we wait. But we wait in joyful expectation of better things yet to come. The white linen that we are to be clothed in symbolizes in verse 8 the righteous deeds of the saints. Again, in dramatic contrast to the great prostitute. There should be a distinctness about the way that you live your life that doesn't look like people in the world. I mean, you should open your mouth and preach the gospel. Because if people don't hear it, they won't know. But even if you didn't, there should be a distinctness, a separateness, a hope, a peace, a contentment about you that makes it obvious that something is different about you. Not different like this guy's weird, this guy's socially awkward, but there is a certain dimension to your life that has been transformed by God. And what this does is it points to our ultimate glorification. Salvation, as we speak of it in Scripture, really is kind of a continuum. Sometimes we make the mistake, as Bible-believing Christians and descendants of the Protestant Reformation, 
to just speak of salvation as the moment of our conversion. But actually, salvation is a continuum. It started before the creation of the world when God set his electing sights upon you. And then in space and time, you received the proclaimed word of God, and God regenerated you, and you were justified in his sight, and now you're being sanctified, but there's something yet to come, and it's called glorification. In the here and now, you're apt to still stumble, as John did. But there will be a day when you will sin no more. And you will be presented before Christ as being absolutely perfect and pure, freed from sin. Isn't that going to be encouraging and awesome to look forward to? So this points to the, just, the glorification that we look forward to. This is salvation's final step. Look at verse 9. Any curious words there that you notice? How about the statement, true words? Why do you think God added the word true there and didn't just say words? Because sometimes when we hear God speak in our fallenness, we might still question how true they are how accurate they are. If you're anything like me at times, you will doubt. You will question. You'll wonder. You'll lack patience. So we have this qualifier in the text. These are the true words of God, verse 9. And the fact that God's words are true are intended to help quench the destructive power of doubt. See, this stuff that we're talking about is yet to come in all of its fullness. And so we're waiting, and we're waiting. We're seeking to exercise patience. But every once in a while in our humanness, we might doubt. Maybe you've struggled with doubt in your life, and you wonder why. I think it's good to try to identify doubt's source and deal with it. And there's different sources to doubt. Sometimes... Our doubt is rooted in that very earthy need to see it. I need to see it to believe it. This is the sin of Thomas. I need to see it to believe it. If I can't see it, if I can't touch it, if I can't put my fingers into his side, I won't believe it. Now, if you think about that for a moment or two, And if you're filled with the Spirit of God, you'll very quickly understand how selfish that is. It's like, oh, truth is determined by my capacity to encounter it with my body? Really? So if I don't see it with my little eyes, it's not true? If I don't hear it with my little ears, it's not true? If I can't smell it with my, well, big nose, it's not true? It's very selfish, actually, to demand that God prove himself to us through our five senses. But this was the sin of Thomas. Or perhaps you're plagued with doubt because of a pressure to compromise. This was the sin of Peter. Peter started off well. He declared that Jesus Christ was the son of a living God. He was the first one to do that. Pretty impressive. 
Then he went on to proclaim the gospel for decades, but in Galatians, he had to be confronted by a guy that was saved years after him, a much younger believer, the Apostle Paul, because he started to compromise. And the sin of Peter was to listen to the religious elite and buckle to pressure and start to change the gospel. So now it's not just based upon grace, but you got to add the ritual of circumcision. He had to be confronted. Paul, Paul was pretty blunt in his chastisement of Peter. He said, if you even add, it, add to the gospel like this, you're at risk of eternal damnation. He uses the word anathema there. And maybe that's kind of a problem in your life where you're, you're pressured to compromise because of what the powerful influence of society or false religion bearing down on you. Or maybe you doubt because you've not really been converted. This is the sin of Judas. Judas hung around Jesus. He watched Jesus. He learned from Jesus. But we know in the end he was in it for the money. And so let's do a brutal assessment of our faith today and ask, why am I a follower of Jesus. What am I in this for? Is it something in me that I'm looking to satisfy, looking to gain? And if you discover that in fact, you're not a true follower of Jesus Christ, rather than giving up and calling it quits and ending it all as Judas did, you can repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ and choose to follow him. The sin of Thomas, the sin of Peter, the sin of Judas, these are all things that we continue to struggle with and we need to be aware of. And in order to drown this kind of doubt, we need more than a little Dixie cup full of faith. Doubt drowns in a sea of faith. That's where doubt drowns. In Hebrews 11, 1, it says, now faith is the, underline this word, assurance. That's a solid word. That's a meaty word. It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, that's a profound word. The conviction of things not seen. Hope there equals certainty. Sometimes it disturbs me when even Christian people speak of faith almost as a synonym for wishing it's like a wishbone or something. Well, I, I hope it happens. I'm not really sure, but... And we, we, we falsely communicate to the world that faith is like checking your brain at the door. It's kind of based more on sentiment than anything else. It's, it's kind of wishy-washy. It's sort of airy-fairy. People are like, I don't want to be part of that. That's not faith. Faith is much deeper, much more serious, much more certain than that. And that certainty grows with conviction to the point that a true Christian can say... I know, I know the gospel to be true. I just know it. Now think about how we know something to be true. Think about how you know something to be true. How do you know something is true? Well, in the West, we've basically given one answer to that question. It has to be explicit, factual, testable, evidential, intellectual, reasonable knowledge. That's all there is to knowledge. 
And there is that. There's such a thing as explicit knowledge. Explicit knowledge is something you can learn. Something can, somebody can teach you that. Something can demonstrate it. You know, solve the equation. There's the answer. That's true. Study the map. There's that location we spoke of. That's true. Parse the word. That's true. There is such a thing as explicit knowledge, and there's lots of explicit knowledge found in the Word of God, which can be gained through teaching and research. It can be quantified. But that's not the only kind of knowledge. There's also tacit knowledge. Tacit knowledge is knowledge that you gain through experience. You know, you learn to, someone can teach you about painting, but until you start to paint and you get used to sort of the stroke of the brush, the creation of the curve, the use of the media, it takes time. Someone who's very artful at their trade or their vocation or their task might be asked, well, how do you do that? And they're like, well, I got to think about that. Because to take tacit information and dump it back into explicit information, is, it can be a bit of a challenge. But you know that that kind of knowledge exists even in your own life. The first kind of knowledge is really like know what. Tacit knowledge is like know how. But then there's a, another kind of knowledge, faith knowledge. This is the know who. And faith knowledge is not gained just by your experience. And it's not gained just by explicit statements. It's gained by revelation. This is the area of knowledge that the Western world has chosen to abandon. Historically, almost every culture, rightly or wrongly, understood that, that you could gain knowledge through revelation. Revelation comes to us through the prophets of old. It comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. It comes to us through the internal testimony of God's Holy Spirit. And it even comes to us as we observe God at work in other people's lives. Take, for instance, singing in church. When you sing in church, you can sing songs to tunes that sound a lot like something you've enjoyed on the radio this week. And you can sing songs and understand the words, the, the lyrics. But in Christian worship, when we open our mouths and we declare things that are true, biblically true through song, something happens inside of us. Like our soul is arrested. Our hearts are filled. Our minds kind of overflow. This is because God is manifesting his presence to us. When you hear the word of God, you can study the word of God for facts and figures like many Christians do. Or you can study the word of God to encounter God. And when you encounter him, it's like, wow, someone took a big highlighter and just started highlighting it. Like I can feel it. I know it's true. I know exactly what's being said here. But, but it's, not, it's not quite the same as explicit knowledge. And it's not quite the same as tacit knowledge. It's, it's revelation. And it's a gift that God has given to us. And when we receive that, we shouldn't apologize for it. And we shouldn't try to defend faith revelation using explicit means or tacit means. Because you know what happens then? If you just go to the scientific method, for example, which falls into the category of explicit knowledge, 
and you try to use the scientific method to prove the word of God is true, what's the innate problem with that? You're using a mechanism that is designed to explore the created world to try to explain the uncreated one. It just doesn't work. If you use tacit knowledge, just your personal experience, to try to prove the veracity of Scripture, someone else is just going to say, well, I had a different experience, and the argument falls apart. So we have this extra gift called revelation, and we don't have to then try to convince people that the gospel is true, but we believe that when the gospel is proclaimed, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It has the capacity, just by being proclaimed, to slice deep into a person and transform them from the inside out. So our job is to faithfully proclaim, and then we back that up with prayer, praying the Holy Spirit would go before us, and he would arrest people's hearts, minds, and souls with his word and do what we do not even have the capacity to do, no matter how well we explain things. This is the gift of revelation. And revelation is what gives us faith. And that faith then is sure. Again, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance. How do you know? I just know. Because I've had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. Of things hoped for. The conviction. Man, you seem really convinced. Yeah, I am really convinced. How convinced? More than 100%. Because I've been convicted, my heart, my soul, my mind, it's been, it's been arrested, it's been enchained to the gospel. And this is what is continuing to do a transformational work in my life. So this is like all like super, super, super awesome stuff. But then we're back to verse 10. In verse 10, John, talk about revelation. The guy wrote books of our Bible. The guy received direct Holy Spirit inspiration to write five books of our Bible. The guy was Jesus' best friend on earth, arguably. The guy served Christ for decades. And then he commits the sin of idolatry. He worships the messenger instead of the Messiah. He's corrected. And of course, corrects his actions. But I was thinking to myself, man, if I was John, and I'm writing like one of the last chapters of any book I'm ever going to read, I might be tempted just to kind of skip that episode. I mean, right now I'm looking pretty good, but I'm going to kind of like skip that episode. But here we have a man of God who humbly, under the inspiration of God's spirit, includes a major fumble in the word of God for you and I to be warned by. And that is be humble or stumble. And even if you're humble, you'll still stumble. So we rely upon God. We display vulnerability. We seek to walk close to him. When we stumble, and we will, we quickly repent. It's not about if you'll sin. It's like when. When is it going to happen next? And then we repent. We move away from it. We don't allow it to become a pattern. 
And it's this display of vulnerability prior to our glorification that reminds us that we are not yet glorified. We're not yet glorified. So be careful as you wait upon God to renew all things. You walk humbly before him. You keep short accounts with him. But be assured that in the end, God does win. Be encouraged by these words. 